That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BX, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. I believe being a black woman has been my superpower. I, I, I really do believe that. And I have to thank my, my mother uh, and, and those who came before her you know, for that, uh, that view of life as a black person I'm imbued with. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Paula Boggs, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Uh, hi, Paula. How, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Hi, Meryl. Good to good to see you today. You know, I I um, neglected to read your biography or um, uh, tell our audience, give our audience an idea of what your uh, your your uh, esteemed legal career was. Um, I will briefly do that and then you can kind of correct me and and give us more insight but i know that um you practice law school um you practice law for at least 30 years um that you uh ended up in-house at both dell and you know as a gc and and um the gc at starbucks uh at the end of your career i got that right right um absolutely and that that was after having um, had a, a career somewhat in the military after having a four-year ROTC scholarship, um, and so and uh, now you're a musician. So I find all of that fascinating. And um, why don't you fill in? Uh, what I've left out about your, you know, just kind of your elevator pitch about your career. Well, sure. Let, let me let me start by saying, I've I've been a musician all my life, but I'm now in a life chapter where I'm earning money from music. <laughs> uh, wow, which is which is, which is different, um, and I I love that passion. Uh, for music of it and the performing of it for a long time. Um, so I don't know. Maybe maybe the best place to to start uh, about me is um, a little bit from the the beginning. Uh, I'm the child of educators, born in Washington D.C., lived in segregated Virginia for a while. Then at age 13, my, my mom moved herself and her four children out of the segregated South to Europe, where she was the teacher for the Department of Defense school system. Uh, I came back uh, to the U.S. for college, uh, was uh, Army ROTC, 
while uh, a cadet, I earned my airborne wings. Uh, and, wow. and then at, after graduating uh, the top uh, ROTC cadet from Johns Hopkins, I went on to law school at Berkeley and then served my four-year military commitment uh, in, in Washington, D.C. Then moved to Seattle. Uh, and um, over the past uh, generation, uh, I, I've been a federal prosecutor. I've been a big law firm partner, left Seattle uh, for Dell, did that for five years, and then returned to Seattle uh, for Starbucks. Meanwhile, sort of on a parallel track was uh, my music story, uh, which began at really uh, age seven when I first learned how to play piano, didn't like it, discovered guitar at age 10, started writing music. Uh, throughout my middle school, high school years, music was central uh, to who I was. Um, at 17, um, I did what I think a lot of people, uh, at least of my generation, uh, did, which was force ourselves, I forced myself to make a choice uh, between, you know, going to a school that was strong academically or uh, strong in music or strong uh, in athletics. I was a, a high school athlete as well. I realize now that was a false choice I put on myself, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's the one the 17-year-old me put on myself. And that that led me to choosing, you know, door number door number one, the academic route. Uh, right. And and though music continued to be part of who I was, the older I got, the less that was so. Uh, un until by age thirty, it was pretty much something I used to do. Mm -hmm. And that was my music story for another 15 years until uh, really tragedy uh, forced me uh, to uh, <laughs> reopen that box. And, and the, the, the tragedy was my sister-in-law, my youngest brother's wife, died in a car crash, uh, leaving uh, my, my brother and a two-year-old daughter uh, Jada and my my spouse then um, really encouraged me to use music guitar as a way to grieve and and so with her support I I did that and once I was reengaged with music you know bit by bit it was a point of no return, uh, so right. much so that by 2012, uh, I was done with law, the practice of it. At least I had accomplished everything I had ever hoped to in law and more. And so while I was still young enough to do it, um, I took another leap uh, into the unknown uh, leaving Starbucks, leaving the practice of law. And that's basically been my story since 2012, a combination of, of music, performing it, 
through Paula Boggs Band, uh, public speaking, and, you know, board work, for-profit and non-profit. Interesting. And you you and I kind of talked um, briefly uh, before, and one of the notes that I wrote down, which I think, you know, kind of make, makes me smile, um, uh, is that you did not like law school. We, bo- we both attended uh, Berkeley Law School, then known as Bolt, now known as uh, as Berkeley for a, a, a lot of reasons. Um, and I didn't like it either. Uh, um, but I'm, I'm interested uh, to know why, why, you, why you didn't like law school. Absolutely. I, I didn't like it at all. Uh, <laughs> and I think, yeah, you know, I think, you know, part of it, Merle, is how I got there in the first place, which I think I shared with you was, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a scam in the sense that I was in college at Johns Hopkins. I was an ROTC scholarship cadet. Uh, I had done that deal. By by senior year, I realized I, I just wasn't ready for active duty yet. And right. you know, despite you know graduating uh, as the number one cadet, I still was not ready <laughs> for active duty. Right. And so I had um, I had thought through a variety of delay schemes, and the one that resonated. <laughs> most with me was graduate school. And so I said, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take the LSAT for law school. I'm going to take the GREs, uh, you know, for graduate school, the LSATs are first. And if I do well, then I'm going to go to law school because that's three years of delay uh, rather than two. And I'll, you know, and I'll do my, I'll do my army stint as a lawyer, as opposed to, you know, field artillery or something else. Right. Right. So, right. Um, so that was the logic behind ending up at, you know, the law school formerly known as Bolt. Uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing more sophisticated than that. And so from day one, at Berkeley School of Law, I was there, you know, sort of as a, okay, this is my tool to do this other thing, right? Right. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, oh, I have this passion to be a lawyer. Rather, it was, okay, this is the tool that at the end of it will enable me to do my four years as a lawyer, right. you know, as opposed to field artillery or something else, air defense. Well, um, and, and, you know, you know so did, that's how that happened. And so, you know, that's, it's interesting because I, I went to law school because I felt like I had to get a graduate degree um, because both my parents had graduate degrees and in fact and they were both educators as well and in fact they met in grad school which is unheard of right for their era um and they met in in grad school in oklahoma of all places where they actually had to sit behind the rope 
um, wow. it, you know, uh, segregated uh, from from other grads grad students. So I mean, you and I probably could talk for a year about all kinds <laughs> of things. Um, and wow. talk about, you know, uh, the, the kind of things that we've gone through and our parents have gone through. Um, but, you know, I don't even know where to go with you, Paula. I mean, you, you have done <laughs> so many things and you've done them so well and you've, and you've been so successful. You know, one of my questions that I usually ask people is what makes you unique? I, I think that that in, a, in and of itself um, makes you very unique, but I think what really makes you unique is that you're a black woman doing all these things. So can you talk to me, you know, about what effect or how you feel like you've been able to use it? Has that has it has that been your superpower or has it held you back? You know, I don't know. You know, talk to me about being a black woman and having done all these things and done them so well. You know, Meryl, I, I, and I don't say this this lightly, but I believe being a black woman has been my superpower. I, I, I really do believe that, and. I have to thank my my mother uh, and and those who came before her, you know, for that uh, that view of life as a black person. I'm imbued with, uh, and 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 what do I mean by that? Well, you know, one of the one of the things that in the older I get. The, the more I understand what a gift this was. Um, my great-grandmother was alive um, until after I graduated from Berkeley School of Law. Wow. She was, she was born in 1896. Uh, and so, and she and, she and my, my Aunt Maggie, who actually lived with my family, her sister actually lived with us, uh, for me, from the age of seven uh, until um, she died uh, in my first year of law school. So, um, so these women, my my great grandmother and her sister Aunt Maggie, who lived with us, were the first generation of my mother's family born free. So, you know, their mother was born a slave. So, so it, it, I had the gift of knowing and living with and internalizing the, the, the story of my ancestors in, in a real-time way. Uh, and so I, I, I know that is a gift that informs my Black girl magic, if you will. Right. Uh, I love that. You know, yeah. you know, a, you know, a second is my, my dad was a professor at an historically black college, uh, Virginia State, uh, from um, age four for me uh, until my family left 
uh, for Europe when I was 13. Uh, and, and what that did for me, in fact, my dad was the, the first, he, uh, he received Howard University's first PhD in zoology in, in 1960. And then when that happened, my family moved from Washington, D.C. Uh, to Petersburg, Virginia. And what that did for me was in my world of black people, almost all of them, like my dad, and my mom had a graduate degree, um, were highly educated black people. So, um, and, and, and not just highly educated, they were academicians. And so as a little kid, I internalized the, the notion that, you know, black people were, you know, really, really smart and, and accomplished and erudite, you know, all, you know, all those things for me equaled being right. black. Uh, and, and, and so, and so that was, um, you know, that was my Petri dish, if you will, as a little kid. And, you know, the, the, the other thing about my, my early childhood, and candidly, some of it I'm, <laughs> I'm actually just realizing the enormity of the situation I was in in this post-George Floyd moment. So an example of that is, so we lived in segregated South. My dad's a professor at Virginia State. And we're, and as a, as a kid, I was attending a Catholic school in Petersburg, St. Joseph's, which was the only integrated school in all of Petersburg. So everything else was was segregated. There, it, it was either all black or all white. And there was, if you weren't white or you weren't black, you you probably didn't live in Petersburg, Virginia. There, right. There was no right. Latino right. community. There was, right. you know, there was no Asian American community that I knew about. Um, you know, it was just black or white. And in, I attended St. Joseph's from grades one through six. Well, from grades one through four, I was the only black girl in the wow. class of 50 kids. Um, and so, it, and then a, a second black girl arrived in fifth grade, Susan Bush, and we became fast <laughs> friends. Well, what I really hadn't internalized, Merle, until really, I mean, it's embarrassing, um, but until this sort of George Floyd moment of reckoning for our nation is that whole time between first grade and fourth grade, I never, uh, I never visited the home of any of my classmates, nor did any of them visit my home. So, you know, yeah, I had, I went to birthday parties and this and that, um, and, you know, had sleepovers like little kids have with my black friends. But right. all of my all of my school friends were white, except the, the one little black boy who, you know, was in all of those right. classes too. So 
so because of segregation, I never, for my classmates, grades one through four, I, I, I never got invited anywhere, um, nor, you know, would, you know, the parents of my classmates allow them to come to my house, you know, and, you know, and, and, and it's only been somehow I just kind of navigated through that. And, um, you know, but now I realize, you know what, wow, you know, I never spent the night over, you know, you know, the home of a white person until we moved to Europe. Right. Well, you're not going to believe that. Okay. Well, first first of all, I'm going to tell you that I think that what that prepares you for is code switching, right? So it, it, it makes you very adept at uh, being able to, to exist efficiently, effectively in different worlds, right? You're, you, can, you can exist in the black world, you can exist in the white world, you know, it, it, it makes you really good at, at, at turning those switches and figuring out what the expectations are for you um, uh, and how you present yourself in, in various situations. I, I, but I have to t- say this, you're not going to believe this, my husband graduated for, from Virginia State University. No way! His, <laughs> his mother... His mother graduated from Virginia State University, and oh his gosh. father taught ROTC at Virginia State University, which is where he met his uh, uh, met his wife, um, and they also uh, ended up in Europe. My husband was and my, before that they were in Europe because of the military, and my husband was born in Germany. So I mean, there's just so many things here we could we could like go on and on oh about. Oh my God! Um, yeah, but he also, uh, you know, I was I'm from Oklahoma, um, and ended up my parents were the only ones who left. Uh, Oklahoma, and they were brilliant to do that, and we ended up in in California when I was seven. So I'm pretty much a California girl. So I never really had that um, that uh, segregation uh, experience, um, but I he, I have definitely heard about it from my husband, and also the fact that his family's from um, Ahoskie, North Carolina, and and he he went to to elementary school and segregated schools. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely have heard about it. I haven't necessarily ex- experienced it, except that I did grow up in Compton, which was all black at the time. So I didn't know any white yeah. people. <laughs> um, so wow. let, let, me, let me ask you this. What, what stereotypes do you feel? You know, we haven't even really, you know, let's, let's talk about law, practicing law, since you did spend 30 years um, doing that and, and reaching the heights <laughs> of it, uh, even though I, it, it seems that you don't really want to talk about it, and I don't blame you, but I'm going to make you. Um, what 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 stereotypes do you think that that you had to overcome, particularly, for example, as the GC at Starbucks? Like, you know, do you feel like you were accepted? You know, totally, or do you feel like you had to prove yourself, or do you feel like you just didn't care? And they had to deal with it. Wow, that's a great question. And thank you. You know, and uh, you know the 
you're welcome. The 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 upshot. Let's let's get to the bottom line. Um, at at Starbucks, I I did not care, and I was in an environment that allowed me to be my authentic self. So both those things were true. Um, so how did I get there though? How did I get okay. to an emotional state where, um, you know, I was going to do my job and and do it in a way that was uh, was informed by knowing I could do my job to the best of my ability and never fear being fired. Okay. Okay. So how did I how did I get there, right? Yeah. So well, I, I, inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> yeah. So how did I get there? How did I get there? Well, I got there because of the job I had before Starbucks. So when when I when we when my spouse and I left Seattle and moved to Austin, Texas. For me to join Dell, we were breaking all kinds of new ground uh, at Dell <laughs> in the sense of I, I was the first openly gay executive in the history of Dell. I was the first black woman uh, executive at Dell and the, and the, the first black man arrived maybe six weeks before me. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so there was, you know, there was a a lot of new in, in that sense. Um, but it is also true uh, that Dell was on fire, uh, in, in the, in the best sense of that word during the five years I was there. Uh, it okay. was, it was, it, it quadrupled in size in five years. Uh, but it also had its first layoff during that period too. So it was, it was like this boom bust thing. Uh, and so it was during that period that my spouse and I went to a financial advisor and said, okay, if Paula got fired tomorrow, what would it take for us to live for a year, uh, you know, with the idea that within a year, Paula could probably get another job? What does that look like? And we literally mapped that out. And and structured our life that way. So by the time I got to Starbucks, I had the confidence to know that, you know, if by doing the right thing I got fired at this place, I can I can live. I know what Amen. I need to do um to and, and I have the confidence to know I can get another job. It may take a while. It may not happen overnight. But we're going to be okay financially if I get fired from this job. So that, I, day one, um, 
arriving at Starbucks, I arrived with that attitude um, that I'm here to to do something, and if if for whatever reason that leads to me getting fired, we're gonna be okay. My family's gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay. Now, as it turns out. Starbucks was an amazing place for me to work. And, you know, after 10 years of it, you know, my, my swan song to Starbucks was, you know, thank you for allowing me to do my thing. I had lived, I had lived and worked in an environment, mainly Starbucks, that had fueled my ability to do my thing. And I was incredibly grateful for that. But I didn't know that on day one. Right. On, on, day, on day one, what I knew was these folks have hired me to do a job. I'm going to do this job to the best of my ability. And if by so doing, I get fired, I'm going to be okay and my family's going to be okay. And that, I, I had that within me on day one. It's funny. I I I I I feel you a hundred percent. It it's one of those things that if you can get there, um, it allows you to not only only be authentic, but also to pursue your passion. Um, particularly if that passion is to try to help people who are help other people, um, and yes. and it 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 allows you. To, to not uh, succumb to fear. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's, it, you know, you were fortunate to be at, at Starbucks to do that. I think it also says a lot about um, just who you are, that you had that thought in the first place. And you know, the fact that you were able to not feel like you had to keep up with the Joneses and live, you know, um, from paycheck to paycheck, right? So, um, there are, exactly. There are a lot of things there. A lot of the things there. One of the things that I did, you know, a, a, a long time ago was I read that book, The Millionaire Next Door, and mm. um, I decided, you know, I want to be that guy. You know, I want to be. I want to <laughs> be that person who nobody, you know, nobody would ever know whether or not what I, you know, what I have. Yeah, I drive a nice car, but other than that, you know, keep mm-hmm. them guessing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I think that there's, there's something very, very liberating about that. Um, now, let me ask you this. We, we have somebody in common, and I think it would be, I would be remiss if I didn't, if we didn't give him a shout out, and that is, uh, Bob Major, who is the, oh. <laughs> the name, one of the, the names in Major Lindsay in Africa, um, whom I adore, and he introduced us. Um, and I don't know, do you have any fun stories about Bob or how you met or anything that ways that he's helped you? You know, I don't, ha- I don't have any fun stories about Bob, but I, I do have um, a fun story about um, the late Marty Africa. Uh, okay, who, that works. You know, you know, was the you know the reason I knew your, your firm in the first place 
Marty was the uh, the placement uh, director at UC Berkeley School of Law when I was a a first year law student. After my first year, Marty left and helped form, you know, your firm. Uh, so that's how I met uh, Bob Major through okay. Marty Africa. Uh, the 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 fun story is uh, Marty Africa placed me at Dell, and so uh, it, you know your firm placed me <laughs> through Marty Africa at awesome. at Dell, and and so you know we're we're in the in the short strokes, uh, and and Marty comes, uh, you know, you know, is like, hey, you know, they're they're about to make you an offer. In response to that, I said to to Marty, "Okay, Marty, you know, here's the deal. Um, I don't I don't even know if you know this, but I'm gay, and <laughs> they've got to know that I'm gay, uh, and that and, and that we're not going to, you know, pick up and leave Seattle for Austin." Texas, unless they're not just tolerant, but they but they <laughs> they are welcoming us um, right. as you know a gay couple, right? So uh-huh. um, so so Marty says, uh, "Well, let me let me go and check with them. Let right? me check. <laughs> <laughs> let me check." <laughs> and so and so she she you know you know a, a day or so later, you know she comes back. And she says, Paula, they say they don't care if you're purple. They don't care who you're sleeping with. They just want you. Okay. And so with that, what it, what it meant, Merle, was for the first time in my career, Randy and I were accepted as a couple in, you know, my, my workspace uh, and Everyone from Michael Dell on down knew the deal with me and us. Right. So there was, you know, there there was no longer, you know, the kabuki dance of, uh, <laughs> so what did you do this weekend? And you know the you know the gender neutral pronouns and all the other, you know, things, gay people who are closeted go through. Uh, right. When they are closeted, I went through. Uh, I was I was freed from all of that. So the so so um the the irony is that um Marty helped um helped with us leaving liberal Seattle for you know conservative Texas and by so doing we for the first time were our authentic selves as a couple. That's awesome. That's that's that is an amazing story. So okay, so I forced you to talk a little bit, bit about practicing law. Let's let's end this uh, po- podcast and this conversation by talking. Uh, tell us tell us about music. Tell tell us about your band. Tell us the name of the band. Tell us where we can find your music. Um, 
you know, do you write music? You know, give give us give us the skinny on it. I am the front woman for uh-huh. the the Adel Brood, as in coffee brood, soul okay. grass, soul grass band, okay. Paula Boggs band. And your listeners can find us at paulabogsband.net. We've been around since uh, 2007. We have released three full studio albums. We're working on a fourth. And what what kind of things do you sing about? I mean, what's the what's the genre? Yes. Yeah, so the music uh, is really um, melodic. To be a lawyer, blues. It, <laughs> it you know it is it is sort of a fusion and a fusion of of folk, jazz, blues, uh, traditional R and B. Uh, and even some elements of world music, bluegrass. It's sort of a stew of music. What I write about, and I'm the chief songwriter, are any of a number of things. Uh, we we just we we just recorded a song that will be released in September that is called America 2020, which is very much a song of this moment. Uh, mm-hmm. and the opening lyrics are, you know, I need a shower, drink. This body, this body bashing, nation snatching drives me to drink, and I'm weary, even three time zones away. So, you know, it, wow. it you know, it, it, it hinges on you know, what is inspiring me uh, to, to write. I mean, there's, there's a, a, another song I've, I've written in this COVID moment, you know, and COVID has been <laughs> a very fertile time for me creatively, is, um, is a song that it, it's entitled, Where's My, Where's My Scarf? And it starts with, it's, it's Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, or Thursday. You know, because we've lost all sense right. of time. At least I have. I mean, it could right. be any day of the week, right? You know, right. what and difference it, does it make? Right? Yeah, what, what difference does it make? And you know, it's Monday, Tuesday, or Thursday. You know, where? You know, where's my mask? Shouldn't shouldn't it be next to my gloves? <laughs> Must get outside. Damn, it looks like rain. Who's that coming towards me? They need to step aside, right? Okay, you know, so right. like, that's, that's awesome. what we've come to. You know, so awesome. it, you know, it, it, you know, I, you know, I've written songs that touch on any of a variety of love, this concept of love, um, and so that has been a muse for me to write music, but uh, a lot of our music is uh, is a reflection of our times, whatever that means. 
right? And, right. You know, we right. have a, a song I wrote that's called Look Straight Ahead. And I, even in, in shows, I say, you know, this is dedicated to all the uh, Black boys and men who too often find themselves at the wrong end of a police encounter. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, it just, it, it just depends, right. On, um, on what, I mean, you know, for better or for worse, there's a lot of material to work with <laughs> in 21st century America. I mean, there just is. Um, right. And, right. you know, you know, and so that's where, that's where I go. Well, I will tell you that um, I have I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the most fascinating uh, uh, lawyers uh, by doing this podcast. One of one of the people, you know, the other musician um, uh, that that I talked to is David uh, Kelly. He's the GC for the Golden State Warriors, um, mm. and, he, and he's a he's a rapper. Uh, and he's, you know, he had just, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, dropped or whatever, uh, his, his latest uh, single when, when we spoke. And somehow I got to get you two together. I think, I think there's a, col- a, a collaboration just waiting to happen somehow there. I would um, love that. I would love to meet David. I have not had the pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Anyway, you know what? I have taken up a lot of your time, and this has been fun. And like I said, I think if we kept talking, we could probably find so many things that we have in common or people that we have in common. Uh, the thing that I, that I love that we have in common is this, this uh, uh, idea that you, know, you, you, you need to be uniquely you and you need to be authentic, and that's what this, this podcast is about and trying to bring – that to people and encourage them um, to to have the courage to be uh, authentic. And so I'd like to like for you to maybe leave us with one um, one you know a little drop of, of wisdom for folks that that maybe will encourage them to 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 dare to be authentic. Yes, I'll, I'll leave I'll leave your listeners with this. For a generation now, I've been a champion of diversity and inclusion. And one of the sort of secrets to my success, I think, in creating a culture where diversity and inclusion is is celebrated is in how I've defined it, which at the end of the day is a culture where everyone can remove their mask in in the workplace because i believe that when people are able to remove their mask whatever their masks are mm-hmm. then they they will do their best work because wearing a mask and i and i come from it, it um, as one who has worn the mask in the workplace is stressful. And you don't right. even understand the layers of stress that 
wearing the mask puts on you. Uh, and so when you create an environment as a leader or as someone who is lucky enough to work in an environment where you don't have to wear the mask and you can just be yourself, you're going to do your best work. Um, and so that's, that's been my guiding principle about diversity and inclusion. And it, we tend to talk about it in terms of, you know, race or gender uh, or sexual orientation or whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's even bigger than that. It, you know, mm -hmm. because we, we all have masks and, you know, whether, whether the mask is, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want people to know about maybe there's an emotional issue that I'm living with that I try to mask, right? Right. Um, you know, if you can be in a work environment where you're, you're no longer required to hide that, it's just part of who you are, then you're going to do better work. Right. No more pretending, right? Exactly. No more pretending. Paula, I just want to say thank you for being here to BS with me today. Um, and I really, really appreciate it. And I want to say thanks to everyone for listening. Um, and until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.